Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 3rd, 2021. I'm John Bob Horitz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. You can read our wares and sample our merch and do all kinds of fun stuff at our new URL, www.commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and then ask you to subscribe, which is one of the many ways that you can support this podcast. Christine Rosen is out this week with me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us, tech commentary columnist and all-around smart guy, longtime editor, popular mechanics, entertainment weekly, you name it, and host of the... What is the name of... I, I, I don't want to mangle your podcast name. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? James B. Meggs. Jim, thank you for joining us as ever. It's great to be back. Uh People who have listened to this podcast for a long time know that we are excited whenever we have Jim on because uh, aside from his uh, many, many great articles, uh, maybe our favorite of his articles he did last year, and it was called, uh, the subject was Elite Panic, uh, centering in that piece's case on on an earthquake in um, in Alaska, where the authorities all went bonkers, scared, and and refused to provide information, and were afraid of scaring people. And then an independent radio broadcaster basically united the community and helped everybody get through the get through the earthquake, and or helped arrange for. Uh, for people to do what they needed to do to get Anchorage aright. And, um, and this, and Jim adduced in this and talked in other cases about the phenomenon he called elite panic. So I thought it would be an interesting moment to discuss the phenomenon of elite panic with him as we continue to sift through the wreckage of our, um, effort to get out of the pandemic uh, and living under the shadow of COVID over the last two weeks by the behavior of America's public health elite, Jim. Yeah, I didn't actually coin the term elite panic. In fact, sometimes I feel that it's slightly an overheated way to describe this very common phenomenon. But what it means is that in disaster situations or serious problems facing society, that have the feel of a crisis, the public officials often overreact. They don't trust the public. They're worried that if they put out too much information, people might take it the wrong way. They'll run around. They'll make the, they will make the problem worse. So what we saw in Alaska was, for example, they were, there was a group, a self-organized group of a lot of mountain climbers mostly that were rushing into the, the collapsed buildings to try to see if they could rescue people. The police stopped that just a few hours after the earthquake because they were more worried that waves of of, um, of looters would be attacking the downtown business district. So they sent out all these volunteers to guard the, you know, the shattered storefronts. And, you know, you can make fun of that, but it's a very typical assumption uh, that people will behave incorrectly. We saw that one of the very first things we saw in the pandemic, the whole mask thing. Why didn't they just say, we need to keep the mask for the hospitals, folks? Instead, they lied to the public and they said, oh, well, masks don't work. So, you know, you don't need masks. And they, in that very first step, they they lost some trust. Uh, uh, many people to this day, if you ask them about the, the uh, government's assurances on vaccines, the first thing they bring up is, well, they told us not to wear masks. Every time you fail to give the public honest information, including information that might be scary or worrisome, you you lose a little bit of credibility. And we, we saw that from the earliest days of the pandemic, Bill de Blasio, Cuomo, Trump, they all retroactively said, well, you know, yeah, maybe what we said wasn't quite accurate, but we couldn't have panic. We had to avoid panic. Everybody worries that the public is going to panic. And in fact, what we see again and again is the public usually handles these things surprisingly well. And we saw that in, in the earthquake in Anchorage. We saw that after Hurricane Katrina, when ordinary civilians showed up to try to help rescue people, the, the authorities 
in some cases, tried to keep them out. So we're seeing it here in the reaction to the COVID pandemic. Certainly, we're seeing it just this past week in some of the statements from the CDC trying to keep us uh, alarmed, exaggerating threats that don't need to be exaggerating, and fearing that the public can't understand any degree of nuance when it comes to figuring out what their level of risk is. Well, don't you think also we have a weird phenomenon here, a kind of reverse elite, complicated elite panic in that uh, the elite want, in this case, wants the public to panic. Yes. The elite the elite is, is essentially now making arguments that we should panic. <laughs> well, and, that's a form and, of it. Right. Yeah, that's right. a form of it is if people relax too much, they'll do all the wrong things. They'll they'll you know, hang out at parties and, and spread COVID. So we want to keep them afraid, uh, you know, and even as things are getting better, if we let them know how much things have gotten better, then, then you know, it's going to be a disaster. So there's certainly an incentive to, uh, to keep people, if not panicked, at least worried. And and you've seen exaggeration of the risk in order to attain that that objective. You know, so, it, uh, okay, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. It, it strikes me that part of the problem here is that um, not that elite panic was uh, ever a beneficial approach, but today it seems to be sort of particularly um, best suited, if we could say that, to an age that no longer exists. Um, which was an age without um, the complete uh, sort of flooding of public information, of, of information publicly, rather, um, and of widespread skepticism and populism and an already tremendous built-in distrust of, of institutions. Um, you know, it seems to me like uh, what, whatever benefits imagined or real there, there was to going the, the elite panic route, in the 20th century uh, absolutely simply don't exist anymore. They inspire only more skepticism immediately. I mean, we are looking at this uh, as people who listen know in a very granular fashion. And the overwhelming majority of people in the United States do not have the time or the patience or the interest to study what is going on on a day-to-day basis in a granular fashion. And so I find myself, uh, often uh, thinking that we're seven steps ahead on this conversation simply because we're obsessed with the material and it's part of our remit and our job to pay this close attention to it. So when I read stories, like a story that is linked to, you know, on Drudge's front page about how the uh, ICUs are filling up, they're filling up in America, the ICUs are filling up. What I read is a story about a hospital in Florida that has a COVID-only ICU wing that it's set up uh, where there are now eight patients, which is their their max. Eight, okay? That's their max. It's not like there are 300 people in the hospital with COVID in Miami, which Miami being a very large city, if there were a genuine horrifying outbreak, there could be 300 patients in an ICU with COVID. Um, Every one of them is unvaccinated. So we are simultaneously being informed about a the, a spread of COVID among the unvaccinated. And we are being told that everybody who is vaccinated needs to alter their behavior because of the Delta variant. What we are not being told is what evidence there is to adduce that they have adduced that, in fact, the vaccinated are a threat to the vaccinated or that the vaccinated are even a threat to the unvaccinated, which of course should not be a concern of the vaccinated because the unvaccinated aside from children and the immunocompromised, and you would think by well, the way, the way people, talk, the way people talk, yes, that there are 50 million, uh, 50 million immunocompromised people in the United States, which is not true. So that's, but that's a just the original justification for elite yeah. panic is the public is stupid, right? They don't know what's good for them. They're going to rea- react like panicky animals and tear down the edifice around them. The other ju- justification, which is now very common, is that there are immunocompromised people out there. 
there are elderly people out there. There are people who are medically incapable of getting this vaccine just because they have allergies. They have a series of other conditions that prevent them, literally genuinely prevent them from getting this vaccine. And as such, you know, you can't just throw them into the, to the wolves here. We have to engineer society around them, not believing that the public is capable of assessing the relative risk. The and public behaving doesn't, yeah. uh, as though they have a relative risk that's right. higher than the general public. They expect the general public to comport with their relative the, risk. The and policymakers cater to these people. The public does not have to assess the relative risk of the immunocompromised. The immunocompromised have to assess the relative risk of the immunocompromised. That is the nature of such a condition is it's flu season. Can you go out? You know, maybe you should stay inside. I, you know, you know, you're, you're, you're having chemo. So basically people with chemo don't hug people, don't stay, keep their distance, whatever. That is a condition that the immunocompromised live with forever. Whenever they have before COVID, they will do it after COVID. That, that is, that is life. Again, the idea of rearranging things to protect them when they are they are responsible for protecting themselves and take on that responsibility and have been assumed to take on that responsibility is fascinating. But I'm still back at the data point in relation to COVID and the Delta variant and elite panic. Uh, so we have a surge among the unvaccinated, right? This is a new pandemic among the unvaccinated. The idea is that what's happening is there is an elision being made between the threat to the unvaccinated and the threat to the vaccinated. And it is totally elided, and there's a weird hunger to convince the unvaccinated that they are A, at risk, and B, that they are a risk to others when they are vaccinated, at the same time that people are going around saying, everybody needs to get vaccinated. That is the danger of this kind of second-order elite panic thinking, which is, what should we be doing to get people to act in a way that we think they should act? And right now, the message is hopelessly demented and self and contradictory and self-defeating. Jim, I'm sorry. It reminds me a little bit of some of the messaging during the AIDS crisis. If you remember back then, I covered this a little bit. There was this broad effort to convince the public that everyone was equally at risk to get AIDS and no one was safe. And this was a, uh, a crisis that affected the entire community. AIDS was a, a terrible crisis and it affected a lot of people, but it didn't affect, you know, heterosexual people much uh, who didn't engage in certain practices, who didn't share needles and, and, and things like that. That doesn't mean it wasn't something that required a very vigorous medical and policy response, but this effort to convince everybody they were at risk in order to get them on board with the things that needed to be done to to fund research and and whatnot. And later, that whole thing collapsed. You know, we realized, no, you know, um, married people, as a rule, are not are not coming down with AIDS. And um, and even, you know, promiscuous heterosexual people in the for the in the main were not coming down with AIDS. So it was a step towards undermining some of the credibility of the establishment in terms of of that kind of messaging. And now we see that in this effort to say, okay, yes, you may be vaccinated, but you're still at risk, just like the unvaccinated. So you have to follow all these uh, these behaviors. And as you say, it's you can see one impulse leading officials to want to send that message. At the same time, they are undermining the message that everyone needs to get vaccinated. So it's, you know, they're creating this kind of this kind of ridiculous muddle. And they're basing a lot of this on very thin evidence. There was, uh, we, you, you all have talked a good deal about the, the Provincetown study that was the, the basis for CDC's changed guidance on masking. But, you know, if you look at that study, it is very shaky. There's a good story in the Wall Street Journal today uh, they quote um, Vinay Prasad, this really good uh, epidemiologist at University of California, San Francisco, 
He says the CDC is, quote, making these decisions on the basis of extremely weak and unreliable data. And at the same time, not doing the necessary work to reduce uncertainty among the population. I, I think that's exactly right. So before we get to the to the evidence and break it down from your perspective, Jim, because I think that's really valuable, I don't want to depart yet from the elite's um, f- pretty flailing effort now to exercise some sort of agency in the face of ab- abject helplessness. Um, you have, and which I think explains a lot of this. Now you have um, the second time I've heard this this week in print. The New York Times talked about how an unnamed administration official previewed the notion that the president of the United States, Joe Biden, will address the nation for a second time later this week to reiterate and clarify this from the New York Times, reiterate and clarify his main takeaway points. One, the vaccines are safe and effective. Two, the reason even vaccinated people have to mask up again is that so many people are unvaccinated. So go get your shots and tell your friends and neighbors to do the same. In essence, they're just talking to the only people who are listening to them anymore. They know the unvaccinated are an unreachable population. They know there's nothing they can do to reach out to them. They know the vaccinated are attentive and listening to them. So that's the only way they can demonstrate their efficacy is to continue to impose restrictions on the, the people who are already listening to them and are and are, have demonstrated some fealty to the understanding that they, that elites you know have an interest in in managing this crisis and actually know what they're doing, whereas everybody else isn't listening. But what they're asking the public to do is engage in like a World War II era pop drive, right? You know, pans for planes, which is just morale boosting. That's all it is. Anybody who applies even a moment's worth of critical thought to this would understand that what you're asking us to do, masking is is not going to achieve the desired outcome getting more people vaccinated it's also, just also also it's the it's opposite it's the opposite of morale boosting that's the whole point right. it is morale destroying not morale, morale destroying, but at least you're engaged you know it's a yeah, national the idea struggle. is people are like i don't know what to do we're at war i don't know what to do i need to help and it's like here bring it up bring in an old pot it's like <laughs> wow i'm doing something now it's like there's a Delta variant. I don't know what to do here. Go live in a mask for, you know, that's really going to cheer you up and make you feel like you're contributing to the, you know, to the well-being of the country. I just want to point out um, in relation to the Provincetown survey, some even hinkier stuff. Okay. So I'm going to quote here from an article in the Boston Globe from July 30th, uh, which talks about questions raised by the CDC report and survey. And here is what, here, here, according to the CDC's report, the article says, 469 COVID-19 cases were identified among Massachusetts residents who had traveled to Provincetown between July 3rd and July 17th, including 346 fully vaccinated people. Okay. So 469 cases. Uh, I don't know what this is. This is like Three quarters of them, seventy-four fully, va- fully vaccinated. That's a lie. Let's just make this clear: the people who told the Massachusetts authorities that they were fully vaccinated, most of them were lying. They were lying. Everywhere else in the country, we are told that the breakthrough rate in vaccination is less than a tenth of a percent, and here in this one place. It's 74% of the total number of of, uh, cases among Massachusetts residents. Those people lied when they said they were vaccinated. We don't know how you extrapolating this from the number of people who tell authorities that they are vaccinated when they get breakthrough infections would be an apposite way to look at this if you want to use the Provincetown study as a synecdoche for the country and the breakthrough infection rate, which is a lot of people are saying that they are vaccinated who may not be vaccinated when they get into trouble. But the implications when they get of that sick. are even... It's like when your doctor says, do you smoke? And you smoke and you tell your doctor you don't smoke because you don't want him to yell at you. But Which also happened during COVID, which is what, why they, people started saying smoking may prevent you uh, from <laughs> oh, yeah. getting COVID because everyone yeah. who came in with COVID said, no, I don't smoke. Yeah. <laughs> but the implications of that are even bigger, right? So if you're saying that all these people are lying, they're coming down with COVID because they're unvaccinated. There were no severe cases, right? There were no, the hospitalizations were minimal and they cleared out pretty quickly and there were no deaths. 
Right. So well, if that's you're saying same, that, yeah. then you're also saying that this particular variant is far less severe. But it is far less severe. We have a we have a we have a case rate today in the high eighty thousands and a death rate of three hundred. In other words, the death rate, the case rate keeps going up. The death rate remains relatively flat between 200 and 300 a day or 340 a day. It's not great that that's the number, but that number is a flu. That's a flu number. That's, you know, that's that's 60. Okay, it's not It's a very bad flu number. It's like 60,000 a year if it remained at this level, but it's not 600,000 in a year. Anyway, Jim, sorry. Yeah, so I don't know about this theory that they that a lot of these people were lying. As Noah says, the fact that the fatality rates were so low is, uh, to me, suggests that a lot of them really were vaccinated. Uh, I think you could also see a different scenario, that there were a huge number of vaccinated people. You have to really look at what was going on in this these get-togethers in Provincetown. The weather was terrible. All these people came to hang out, meet other men, for this, this period where first you have the July 4th week and then you have something that is informally known as Bear Week. Uh, and people fled in from all over. They were stuffed into tiny bars and, and crowded dance halls uh, with a very close contact for days and days and days. Just a few super spreaders, a, a few unvaccinated people among that crowd would have a, a maximum opportunity to spread uh, COVID among the, the vaccinated and the unvaccinated. So even if you have a very low rate of breakthrough infections, this was an ideal place to, to get them. Mm -hmm. According to Andrew Sullivan, something like 40,000 people flood into Provincetown. So if there were 400 some cases, that's 1%. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not sure about the idea that, uh, that this shows that vaccinated people can get uh, COVID so, so readily. Uh, I, I think maybe we're, we're seeing more something about the, the unusual nature of this. This was not just a choir practice. You know, this, okay, was, right. uh, this was something, a much more intense level of exposure, quite likely. But then what are the numbers in the end? As you say, five people are hospitalized, no deaths. And here's the really significant thing. The transmission didn't keep going. When the, the when the event was over, typically you have a super spreader event, then that that ricochets out through a, a broader population and and case rates continue to go up as all those people go out and in, infect other people. That didn't seem to have happened here. The the rates in Barnstable County have, have dropped off to, I think, uh, in, according to the Times today, 16 cases per 100,000 people today, which is, you know, 0.016%. So the uh, the kind of expanding ripple effect of this event did not happen. So in fact, instead of this being seen as a really frightening example of how easy it is for vaccinated people to get COVID, I would say you could read it as an example of how well vaccination prevents the continued spread. Right. And, and right. And I think it's important again to point out that the Delta variant, from what we can tell, is more contagious and weaker. Because if it were stronger or as strong as the COVID 19 alpha variant, or alpha, it wasn't a variant yet, uh, if it were as strong, the death toll would be climbing along with. You know, sort of along the same chart as the as the case toll, but there's a difference. which has gone up from ten thousand to eighty or ninety thousand a day, but the but the death rate has only doubled. But there's a difference, John. It, younger people are getting it, the people who are getting uh, infected day are a different cohort than the the older population that you know was responsible for so much of the of the uh, you know the death toll in the first year of the pandemic. So it's, right. I don't know if we know enough yet to say that, that Delta is much weaker. Certainly it isn't, it isn't showing a ferocious, you know, fatality level, but there's a lot of different data you'd have to tease out to really well, identify that. We don't that. have the data. That's part of the problem here is that the CDC acted 
and we should get to this, acted on the basis of extraordinarily limited data. I think on the grounds that they were they were using an abundance of caution and that, you know, they saw very worrisome trends and honestly thought they needed to do something to inter to interdict the spread of the vibe. That was a, that's an honest notion. However, and that they don't have time to wait for a month until they can collate, you know, incredible numbers of data points. And then they act, and then people go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? And they don't actually have the supporting information without just saying, look, we did this because we're scared out of our wits about terrible things happening. They said, we have the data, but it's unpublished. We have the data, but it isn't really collated yet. We're going to give it to you, but it's in a slideshow. The slideshow is indeterminate. They leak the slideshow. The slideshow does not justify the uh, announcement of guidance that everyone in the country has to put a mask on indoors. And and so we are we are being asked to accept that they are acting wisely. And that's where the elite panic stuff starts to crash into certain types of common sense. I want to get to that, but first I need to talk to you uh, about Tommy John underwear. And its newest and most advanced underwear yet, Apollo. With a performance-grade dry-release fabric blend that is exclusive to Tommy John, it's Tommy John's latest comfort innovation. You can't get it anywhere else. Look, Apollo men's underwear is proven to keep you drier and up to 7 degrees cooler than regular cotton underwear. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. It has fanatics. Apollo underwear soft, supportive stretches for the perfect fit every day and is available up to size 4XL with over 15 million pairs sold. Men across America love Tommy John underwear because there's no more flopping, sticking, or chafing. And like all Tommy John underwear, Apollo comes with the best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. Tommy John's new Apollo men's underwear is high-end for your rear end and you can't get them anywhere else. Right now, get 20% off your first order at TommyJohn.com slash commentary. Go to TommyJohn.com slash commentary for 20% off. TommyJohn.com slash commentary. See site for details. So, Jim, let's talk about Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, and then we got to talk about the FDA for, for good measure. Uh, the other important uh, federal agency here involved in the vaccination effort in particular. Um, so she has been in office pretty much since the day of the swearing-in of the Biden administration, January 20th. Uh, it has been a rocky ride. Yes, and we're talking about, we were talking earlier about the CDC making decisions based on incomplete data or flawed data, but it's worse than that because she has continually misrepresented the data in her public appearances. She said in a congressional hearing that vaccinated people have a 5% chance of contracting symptomatic COVID uh, if they are exposed to a positive case. Uh, she, she said in a couple of other, other cases on, on CNN, she said uh, something similar. Uh, and she's these numbers are wrong. There's this common misperception we see in the press. If 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 a vaccine is uh, reported to have a 95% efficacy, then people assume, oh, well, that means 5% of people who have the vaccine are going to get infected anyway. That's not what it means. It means that you have a 95% better, uh, you're 95% less likely to get COVID than unvaccinated people. Well, 100% of unvaccinated vaccinated people are not getting COVID. So the actual number is is much, much lower. In different studies, uh, it could be um, there was a there was a one US study that showed that the the incidence of positive COVID-19 tests among vaccinated people was 0.048 per 1,000 person days. So uh, another one was um, was 0.04 compared to a one point something for unvaccinated people. So these are the the protection the vaccine offers is something like 10 times better than what she's reporting in multiple interviews on CNN and elsewhere. And she's done this in other areas. Back in May, she said that uh, she said there has been there was a discussion about whether how well COVID is transmitted outside. She said less than 10% of documented transmissions in many studies have occurred outdoors. 
So a lot of people took that to mean, oh, well, less than 10%, but it, she said 10%, so it must be somewhere near 10%, when actually most of the studies, and, and she later came out with, with a list of them, they were almost all showed rates of transmission under 1% for outdoor uh, activities. So she's had this ten tendency to to skew the numbers. I think perhaps it's even done by accident. She just said, well, it might as well be on the safe side and and use the most worrisome number to keep people from, from doing dangerous things. But these are very worrisome mistakes. I mean, it's one thing for a private doctor, your, your private doctor to make a little mistake on epidemiology statistics, right? It's something very different for the head of the CDC to make this elementary statistical mistake. I, I think it's worrisome and I think it's of a piece with a certain disorganization across the board. You mentioned that CDC slideshow. The slideshow itself contradicts what the what their guidance uh, was that they um, that they announced the in terms of um, in terms of the transmission rate, the slideshow said that the rate of symptomatic breakthrough uh, infections was about 21 cases per 100,000 vaccinated people. In other words, uh, an infection rate of 0.02%, you know, not 74% or some really scary number. So, you know, I think the, the fact that they are trying to use this Provincetown study which has so many issues around it, without better foundational uh, research is, is really worrisome. And as I said at the outset, this tendency to be alarmist in order to keep the public in line ultimately backfires because people, in the end, they don't trust anything you say. Right. I, I think it also has a kind of melodramatic tinge to it. Not, not that, not that COVID and, you know, like the, what's happened over the last 18 months don't deserve to be thought of almost in a melodramatic fashion, but it is the director, director Walensky, the province town data are in, there's a surge among the vaccinated, the breakthrough cases are happening like that. It's like, oh my God, we've got to act now, you know? Oddly, the elite panic stuff is usually about making sure that the public remains calm, Right. In the end, it's like Chip Diller in National Lampoon's Animal House, who is Kevin Bacon staying there screaming, all is well, don't worry, all is well, all is well. You know, they're panicking while they're attempting to tell people not to panic, which is why the vaccination method message is so demented, which is everybody needs to wear a mask and get vaccinated and then stay in the mask after they're vaccinated until we give until we blow the all clear now that is a message that some people can hear comfortably and it is a message that many other people can't hear at all and as i say we are going through this data these data day to day hour to hour and it is driving us bananas and i have to say it is driving most of the people who look at this data granularly and who do not have a working interest in arguing for the tougher regimes like Liana Wen and people like that whose careers are being made by being COVID hawks. People who are looking at this, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis are frankly, I mean, I think from left to right, from the Atlantic to New York Magazine to us to whatever, are horrified or puzzled or deeply concerned that the CDC is way out over its skis and is interfering with the message that is necessary. Now, let's move on to the FDA because we then have the other missing element here, Abe, who barely spoken today. So I want to, so the other missing element here today is look at the vaccination rates in the United States. We're now at 70% uh, of the American, of the eligible American population uh, over 18, having had at least one shot. Uh, and even in a evil state like Florida, 
monstrous, evil, irresponsible. Everyone should be go to prison because Florida is so cravenly irresponsible. The vaccination rate by one shot of the population over 18 is 69.4%. So it is only a, it's only a scutch under the national average of 70%, which of course we were told at one point was the gold standard for, for uh, herd immunity. And that doesn't even get to people who've already had COVID, whose numbers may be way higher than we realize. I mean, you know, we know 35 million people have gotten COVID. Holman Jenkins of the Wall Street Journal says he thinks 130 million people have gotten COVID without knowing it. I don't know about that. But I'm just saying, like, the number is probably far higher because it's people who got it, were asymptomatic and weren't tested or had, like, a slight cold or something like that, didn't spread it. Or may have spread it and were similarly asymptomatic to the people they spread it to. So we are we are near, we are nearing the finish line here. And the FDA, and we're all we want to do is say everybody needs to get vaccinated. The FDA is dragging its feet from what anybody can tell on on ending the emergency youth authorization standard to going to a I can't remember what it's called. All you, you know, all all clear, everybody, you know, the vaccines are now authorized for use without an emergency. And seems to be going very slowly on the ch- on the child on the under 12 thing. And so and yeah, there's go. this sort of public confusion about the need for boosters. Right. Which which feeds the first part of the discussion here which is the the distrust and the and the sort of um you know the 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 the, the appearance of, of of these people not quite knowing what they what to do and and uh, having any faith in their in their abilities right so jim as a as a again a a, a lay scientific student of the fda and its behavior oh a, well, i just want to say one thing about about how the 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 um the vaccination numbers are actually pretty high. I mean, I think a huge part of the problem here is that we are not being allowed to recognize that what's happening is kind of what a good end game looks like. Um, if you look at, take, take a, a country like Israel, where the vaccination rate is higher than ours, um, they've also had their big spike now. Um this yeah, is, but they're, they're, yeah, but they're also very restrictive. They're being crazily restrictive again, which is a which is a problem. Which is a but, whole other issue, yeah. right? Yeah, but 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 either way, my my point is, it's not like it's not like you know, we're we're it's not like we're blowing it. It's not like we're necessarily blowing this because of backward hicks, um, which is I which is I think what what the the essential message message is here regarding vaccines. Um, In other so words, the, I don't, I'm not sure yeah. we're blowing it. Right. Yeah. Well, the only way that we might be blowing it is just sort of like dropping all access, dropping all questions of access to the vaccine, like or dropping or, or ending the possibility of people using certain excuses to explain why they will not get vaccinated. Like it, it's still on an emergency youth author, authorization level. Now, either the FDA is doing this out of, you know, for for good reason or they're not they love to go slow that's their goal their goal in life is to go as slowly as possible that is the classic fda problem particularly in crises moments they have their way of doing things you know they don't want to get into trouble five years from now if it turns out that you know there's something going on whatever but what what do you what do you make of this well milton friedman identified this problem with the fda and other regulatory agencies no one ever gets fired for the drug that didn't get approved and therefore didn't save hundreds or thousands of lives. They get fired for or they are the agency is discredited for the, the something that's approved that turns out to have some risk that was higher than believed. So there's this there's this there is this delta between the um, the the risks of of any kind of action that is immediate and the risk of not achieving the benefit of that action. So that, that really feeds into the FDA's conservatism, uh, you know, in, in normal times. 
you would think that they would be able to recognize a crisis and think about how possibly to work differently. But we saw that even early on in the pandemic, they did not do that. They had the opportunity to let various groups, uh, individual healthcare organizations uh, that were creating their own COVID tests and different international organizations were creating COVID tests. And the FDA wouldn't let anybody use any test except the, the one that was developed by the CDC, which, of course, we now we remember was terribly flawed. So in their caution to do everything by the book, they made the world more dangerous. Well, now we, we have this issue where a lot of the people who are hesitant at the vaccines, one major comment is, well, it's experimental. I don't I don't want to have them injecting some experimental thing in, in my body because it's of this emergency use authorization. So fortunately, we saw in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, there was a story that the headline reads, FDA vows all hands on deck effort to get Pfizer coronavirus vaccine full approval as quickly as possible. So here we are in the beginning of August and the FDA says, well, you know what? Maybe we should move fast on this. It's just, it's absolutely stunning. So they're going to change how they prioritize their work to clear the decks so that some of the people working on this final approval process can focus on it full time. It's like, what have they been doing the last six, nine months? And it's really, it's really kind of, kind of staggering. Will going to full authorization make a huge difference. I think some of the people who are hesitating will find another excuse, but everything helps. It also means that, say, under the rules, as I understand it, for example, in the U.S. military, they can require um, uh, people to get a vaccine that is fully approved, but they can't force people to get a vaccine that's under the emergency use authorization. So there are cases where it does have a tangible effect. So, you know, now the FDA is going to prioritize this. It's just, um, you know, now that they recognize it, maybe there's a, be a reason to sort of speed up the the process for this, this vital vaccine. It, it really boggles the mind. It absolutely does. And you know what else boggles the mind? The people are still sitting in a chair that's not the X chair. Get the X chair. It's the luxury supercar of office chairs. And now it's got the innovation, that new innovation, the LMAX temperature regulation. Takes your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending LMAX allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your low back. If you're feeling a bit warm this summer, you can set your LMAX to cooling. The air conditioner is bothering you. You can set LMAX to heating and warm up and soothe tired muscles. Are you feeling too stressed? Sitting in your chair, turn on LMAX massage therapy and relax. X-Chair's patented dynamic variable lumbar support was already best in class. Now with LMAX, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. It's crazy! There has never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of X-Chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair to save $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel blade casters, xchaircommentary.com. Now, Noah... We're talking about authorization, emergency youth authorization, the legal standards of all of this. Uh, Bill de Blasio this morning announced that uh, New York is going to require all businesses to require, is, 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 is mandating that all businesses and indoor facilities, whatever, in New York City in September that only the vaccinated will be allowed to enter. They will have to show their vaccine passport, a proof of vaccination, either the card or the Excelsior pass, which we get in New York State or whatever, to enter. And you are fit to be tied. Yeah, well... You're fit <clears throat> to be tied. Yeah, look at me. I'm all tied up. You're tied up. The I mean, I've written about this before, talked about it on the podcast. I think it's a very uh, good set of incentives to get people vaccinated. Um, to have private businesses, private enterprise that can select for a clientele 
that is amenable to this sort of thing to to seek uh, proof of vaccination, um, just as they verify masking. Um, and I even think public officials can encourage this sort of system um, without inviting a lot of consequences that what Bill de Blasio is going to do invites. Bill de Blasio has essentially mandated by decree a government style passport system in order to enter indoor dining venues, indoor entertainment venues, indoor gyms. You will now have to use the city's new digital app, the Excelsior app or a paper card to prove your vaccination um, and tasking businesses with enforcing this sort of thing. And it's the worst of all possible worlds. Um, without tailoring this appropriately for carve-outs and exemptions, for religious objections, for uh, people who have uh, actual, you know, actual conditions that prevent them from getting vaccinated, um, you risk a, a discrimination lawsuit against the city. Now you can tr you could sue private businesses that did the same thing here, but it's a much more it's a tr it's a trickier case and it's a disparate case. You're not talking about one big lawsuit. Su suing the city is easy. Um, I don't understand how they would carve this out for um, racial discrimination, for example. Um, the better part of, I think it's 60 plus percent of the city's unvaccinated population is African-American. Um, I don't understand how they carve this out for children. Are children no longer allowed to eat indoors or go to a movie? Um, I don't understand how they intend to administer the system. And I expect a, a judge to slap an injunction on it rather quickly, um, which makes it worse than uh, useless. It makes it actually counterproductive to businesses that are for or governments, local governments that would have otherwise pursued the much more sensible system, in my view, of encouraging businesses to do this. Some would, some won't, but it would create local incentives administered by local individuals with pre-existing personal relationships with their clientele that would overcome some of these, um, some of the objections that the unreachables have. I mean, this is a way to reach those people. And now you're essentially, if this goes down, you essentially invalidate that enterprise. It seems to me very fraught and likely to fail. I'm for it. This is, this is why this is the only way to get people to vaccinate. The only way to get people to vaccinate who are vaccine hesitant is to make it harder for them to live while they are refusing the vaccine. Yeah, we both agree with that, but we yeah. also want a system that will endure. No, because it doesn't have to, to endure. It doesn't have to endure that long. It doesn't. It really doesn't have to endure. An injunction that long. can come over a weekend. Yeah, but you're presuming that there will be an injunction. Right now, we have a judge. We have we have a three circuit court of appeals uh, ruling that Indiana University's mandate that all students who attend Indiana University have to be vaccinated. That is a public university. Uh, irrespective of, you know, obviously with some version of sensitivity for religious exemptions, whatever the hell that means, because you're talking about an incredibly narrow and tiny number of, 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 of religious sects that refuse all medical treatment or refuse vaccination treatment. So that is a, that is a tiny exemption. Uh, I take your point about, about kids, but, um, in New York City, for example, like uh, theater is supposed to start in September. So is, so are, you know, what about basketball? What about, you know, what about indoor arenas? What about concerts? What about concerts at indoor venues? Things like that. If you are, you are helping these businesses by, by offloading the responsibility on the city so that you're saying that they need to be able to do this with their clientele. How about they say, look, we have no choice. The city says, is mandated that we have to use the vaccine passport. Can't let you in. Can't let you into Yankee Stadium to see a ball game unless you're vaccinated. Sorry, it's not my, it's blame de Blasio. That's 50,000 people a day at a game. What are you going to do to encourage people positively? They've already announced they're going to pay them 100 bucks if they get a, if they get the first shot. Biden said it, de Blasio said it. If we cannot use coercion in some fashion that isn't coercing, isn't coercing everybody else who's done the right thing and gotten the vaccine, I, I, I mean, I, just I, to repeat, I, yes, my, we're, we're all on the same page that private businesses can and should do this to a certain degree. Not everybody can do this, but some private enterprises can do this. 
And they would risk a lawsuit themselves too. Let's be honest about that. In fact, the people that have engaged in this, business owners in the cities that do have this sort of system in place, and it's pretty foolproof, they they've already talked to their attorneys and they know they're exposed. They know they're exposed. They're only exposed to suit. They're not necessarily exposed exposed to judgment. We don't know that. The court case, the court history so far does not support your 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 notion that it is an open and shut fact that no, they it are certainly going to, does okay. when it comes to carve outs the 1905 court decision in jacobson versus massachusetts is the one i think you're talking about oh no <laughs> i'm talking about the indiana university case right now okay, that happened well, but, yesterday no, you're talking about a, a vaccine mandate enforced by the government on all private enterprises blanket enforcement not individual federal organizations public organizations or individual private organizations but that sort of thing and that requires carve outs carve outs for religious objection carve outs for disability and other discri- anti discrimination law and without that the thing goes down and then you have a system where people say oh, we can't do this it already just went down so uh, that's the worst case outcome i have to confess something somewhat embarrassing on this one yeah i don't like it and i'm not sure why i i can't make a great argument against it um, and I think there are some problems in Noah's argument against it. At the same time, I'm more sympathetic to Noah on this. Um, it's in part because we don't need it uh, altogether. And, um, but that's not all that there is to it. Um, I, I, I see it going wrong somehow, and I'm not exactly sure how. I see it going wrong by becoming step one in a long list of things that you'll be required to uh, to document in order to move about society. This is a common claim and sort of right, far right paranoia, conspiracy mindset. But, but how often have you seen the liberal establishment institute something in a crisis and then roll it back when the crisis was over? How often does that happen? <laughs> Right. Look, that is the best argument. And I am not, I'm not, I'm not disputing that argument. I'm saying we have a very specific problem with a very specific solution. De Blasio does not want to mandate masking. One of the things that you're not being fair about, look, I've written a whole, I just wrote 5,000 words on how awful a mayor de Blasio is for National Review. So nobody needs to, like, I, you know, I, I want you all to go read that and you'll see I hate him, you know, more than Noah does. Having said that, he is resisting the mask mandate. He is recommending it, but he is resisting doing it in New York City. And this is one of the ways that he is using to resist it. And I'll tell you one other thing, just to be uh, fair to him and and Cuomo, which is this is a predicate to the vaccine mandate possibility on teachers. Right now, there is a fight. Randy Weingarten, the New York State Teachers Union's, the local, the New York City teachers unions and the general public service unions, the MTA union, the subway union, they do not want to be told that they have to vaccinate. Well, if you are not, one of the ways in which you can say, oh, sorry, you're getting vaccinated is if everybody in the city has to go and show a proof of vaccination just to go to a ball game or go into a restaurant, then goddamn right you are going to get vaccinated if you want to walk into a school building to teach. You do no, not have a special... arguing that you can't impose mandates on municipal employees. <clears throat> that's a political argument that they're having internally. That's not a legal argument. No, I'm what not talking ma- I'm here, making a Bill political argument. Bill de is crafting policy for Manhattanites. No. Manhattanites don't want to wear masks. Manhattanites are mostly vaccinated. The boroughs aren't. This is a, this is a policy that's exclusionary towards the boroughs, and, and that's how you get it rolled back, because it's... it's how is it exclusionary? It's, it's incidentally racial. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. It's incidentally racial. When, oh. when, when four in 10 black people in the city are vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. That's where it becomes a big problem in the, in the political. Zeitgeist. Good. So make to them nothing. What of, I'm saying is make them go get vaccinated. The, you actually think, mandates. you actually think that someone is going to file a lawsuit that says that there is disparate impact on, 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 on black people in New 100%. York city. Wait, Noah, what is the argument? Why are black people not getting vaccinated? Well, honestly, that's the because the, they're the weakest possible. That's the weakest possible case. The religious exemptions and disability exemptions right. is far stronger. Okay. Nevertheless, it's not. It's not. And my fear is that it's just not going to be effective and will backfire. The, we know from effect right. from just anecdote anecdotes 
that people who are convinced to get vaccines who are um, not hesitant about this sort of thing do so because individual proprietors who have a pre-existing relationship with their clientele, a personal relationship, say, I can't serve you anymore. And they say, all right, whatever. Mandates have the opposite effect. They harden and recal the already recalcitrant anti-vaxxers, for example. And, you know, I know you don't have any sympathy for them. Screw them. But the objective here is to vaccinate people, right? So that's okay. not very well, productive. And argued, the second and thing is argued. if this goes down, then it makes it harder to do that sort of thing on a private level. Okay, but you're presuming that it's going to go down. And what I see right now is no hunger for it to go down. That's what I'm saying. You're presuming that there is a civil libertarian weird civil libertarian argument that, A, there's going to be disparate impact on minorities. So a judge is going to say that it's unfair because, because individual black people in aggregate refuse to get vaccinated, that, they're, that they are somehow not being permitted to go to a ball game or to go into the Barclays Center uh, in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's crazy. No one is going to, no one is going to file that suit. On what grounds are you going to file the suit? Demographically? Before you don't even know that it isn't even happening till September. For all we know, by the way, the Delta surge may be over in three weeks. And then and then a lot of this will get dropped. I'm and let's go to the political case just for a second. If you establish the predicate in New York City that everybody who has to enter an indoor building has to have a vaccine pass, then every teacher in the city has to get a vaccine pass. They're not, they are not going to have some weird special exemption. They got to get vaccinated to go into, into a school or teach, or they're going to get suspended. like two different issues. Not at all. Blasio mandated federal, not federal, municipal workers get vaccinated. The teachers union's having a fight over that. Yeah. But that's a different issue from mandating the general public get vaccinated or they cannot have, or they they will have a denial of service. They haven't mandated that teachers get vaccinated yet. That has not happened. Yeah, I know, but okay. it can. There's yeah. not the, the obstacles are not in place. So there. you're making a grander, you're making a grander case here, which is that's what I'm saying. I'm saying you're establishing the if everybody needs to get vaccinated, you're gonna you're gonna pay a price for not getting vaccinated. That's why the Excelsior Pass exists. That's why people are walking around with vaccine passes in their wallets, and that is why you know it, ultimately this is the the ultimate free question, which is. If you do it blanket, then there aren't racial disparity questions here. If you say you don't have an unlimited right to go to a baseball game, sorry, it's not the way it works. You're going to get, yeah, maybe it'll go through the courts fast. Maybe it won't go through the courts fast. You only need it to happen for a month. I mean, logistically, what is the process by which we establish carve-outs for religious objectors and people with disabilities? I don't have the foggiest idea what the what the carve-out is. For Jehovah's Witnesses and Christian scientists, they don't even make up 1% of the population of the United States. It takes one to sue. Yeah, and yes, attorneys I, will file all the lawsuits. Yeah, it doesn't and, take a lot of effort yeah, to file a lawsuit. Yeah, and then they'll be they'll they'll drag their feet. Show me the judge. Look. I wish there were a libertarian judge in New York City who might hear such a case comfortably and happily, but I, I don't see any evidence of that. Let me put it mildly that I don't see any evidence of that, by the way. I mean, let's let's use the activist judiciary to our benefit for once, you know, in, in, in our lives. Anyway, I'm just saying commonsensically, the hell with them. They're not vaccinated. Get vaccinated. I hope they don't go to ball games. I hope they I hope they don't get to eat in restaurants. I hope they sit in their homes. And and like sit in the toilet and cry because they're stupid and they're ruining everybody else's life. And I say that again and again. I'm going to say it again. And if you're within the if you're within my earshot and you want to email me again and tell me about how it's not fair and there's not data and there's not this and there's not that, drop dead. And I don't mean that literally. I mean that figuratively. But if you don't get the vaccine and you drop dead, I'm not crying for you. Sorry, unless you're under twelve. And then I'm crying for you, and then it's all terrible. But once again, I don't see a single shred of evidence to suggest that a single under-12 person in America has died from the Delta variant. The reason I say that is we would know. It would be on the front page of every paper if one kid died from the Delta variant. Kids aren't dying from COVID, and they're not dying from the Delta variant. Show me the case. All right. I'm, I'm, I lost control of myself there. I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry. I'm an old man and I'm very cranky.
and I just don't want my 12-year-old, my 11-year-old, excuse me, to have to sit in a mask for a year in school because of you morons. He's 11 years old. My 15-year-old, my 14-year-old is not yet 15, vaccinated, going to a new school. Is she going to have to wear a mask what, you know, for months while she has to meet new kids and make new friends? Really? The hell with you people if you don't get vaccinated. With your whatever nonsense reason you don't have to get vaccinated. Not that you're not that you're probably listening by this point. Anyway, my apologies for my hysteria. <laughs> Jim Meggs, thank you so much for your common sense and your pulling and you're pulling the reins back on me on my everybody's lying in Provincetown, though I, I don't believe you're right. But I'm still but I think it's very important that we got two views on that. Well, we need more data. Hey, I should <laughs> mention before we go that the, a, a lot of the numbers and analysis I was citing there were from um, Jacob um, Solom at Reason Magazine. He's he's done a great job of of uh, covering this over the last few months. So mm-hmm. if you're uh, you're if you're interested in digging deeper, just check out his pieces on Reason. Absolutely. Jacob Solemn, Robbie, is it Suave? I hope it's Suave. I've always assumed it's Suave. Anyway, they are, they are, they are, they are doing yeoman's work there. So uh, thanks again. uh, And for Abe Noah and the uh, vacation, Christine Rosen, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.